0: i well, to the book of Malachi, the third chapter, beginning of verse 13. So we're going to read together those words that were written just before the lights went out and before God became silent, His curse upon that nation. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against thee? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge, and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and get by with it, or escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possessions. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish, this is the text really, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoer, every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness, will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall, and you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing says the Lord of hosts. Each of us has his or her favorite irritation, that which really bugs us. And if you haven't guessed, mine are the cliches and the slogans that well-motivated people have formulated to aid and abet the cause of religion, like Christ is the answer, and the family that prays together, stays together, really bugged me. And I heard the absolute worst I've ever heard not long ago. It was, things go better with God. Now, can you imagine yourself cupping your hands around your mouth, shouting that slogan to Moses as his people gripe and complain to him in the wilderness, Are To Job as he sits on an ash heap, scraping his boils. Or to the Apostle Paul as he anguishes over his thorn in the flesh. Or to Peter as he dies crucified upside down. Or to Jesus as he treads up the slopes of Calvary. Things go better with God. And you recognize that, of course, as a takeoff. Of a familiar commercial, soft drink commercial. One has to be a little bit nervous when uh, Madison Avenue intersects with a Via Dolorosa. <laughs> and, and and you recognize that as a as a takeoff of that soft drink commercial, things go better with Coke. And coke is presented as a welcomed accompaniment to anything you eat, a condiment, that is, that it brings a special addition or flavor to the food you eat, like mustard. And if you trace that analogy out, it's saying that that no matter what you're up to in life, no matter what your plans or ambitions, no matter where you place your priorities, graduates, you're going to get along better with God. All you have to do is just kind of sprinkle a little God over the tossed salad of life, and you're going to have a, you know, it's just going to be... Uh, Great. Uh, Just uh, one big uh, blessing. It's a common mistake. It's a common error. And it assumes that if I play my cards right and I do everything right, if I honor God, then God is bound by the law of cause and effect to prosper me and to bless me, whatever I'm doing. And it is a a gross... uh, Era of of, a false assumption that that, I can put on my religious face and punch my religious time clock and God is going to make it easy for me it's the problem it's the mistake that the people in Malachi's day made and they said well we'll come back from Babylonian captivity and we'll build the temple and God is bound to bless us and he'll return the glory days and when he didn't they said what good is it to serve God in the first place We've been faithful to God, and what has it gotten us? This is how they said it. It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we've kept his charge and walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Interesting term there. It means they wore black. And they confessed sins they weren't even aware they committed, just in case, you know. And they thought all this kind of... of, uh, of repentance and confession it's bound to bring the blessing of God upon me. And when it didn't, they said what everybody in this room has said at some time or another. What advantage is it to serving God? Why, they said, it's not any better than it was in Babylon. And what we've all said, I've served God, and what has it gotten me? I mean, the, these ungodly people out there prosper and they have all the fun. I can remember in the past sometimes, you know, getting my kids in the car and my wife and head to church on Sunday afternoon, especially in the late spring or early summer. You know, lots of the day left, driving through the neighborhood to church. There'd be families getting together. I mean, these folks are having all the fun, you know. I'm headed off down there to read some part in church training, have church, and won't be half the people there that were there on Sunday morning. I tell you, everybody's felt that way sometime or another. What advantage is it to serving the Lord? And what God is saying here is this, that there is a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. And there is a difference that you will be able to to tell between those who serve God and who don't. And it will not necessarily be that those who serve God are going to be successful and prosperous but you will be able to distinguish between those who do and those who don't. Well, what is the distinguishing characteristic? I mean, what is the difference in the man who has a heart for God and the man who doesn't? What is that which he says will be a distinction? Well, the Bible describes, this text describes five. The first is this, that the man who who really has that fear of God, that man who is a part of the remnant, who really serves the Lord, that man is a man who has a fear of God. He has a deep reverence for for God and for the things of God. He is a person who does not take lightly what God takes seriously. He has a deep reverence for God and the things of God. And the word he uses is the word fear. He uses that word twice in verse 16 and once in verse 2. Fear the Lord, fear the Lord. And it seems to me that what faith is in the New Testament, fear is in the Old Testament. So that when the New Testament talks about faithing in the Lord, the Old Testament talks about fearing Him. So that in the Old Testament, fearing God is comparable to, the, to having faith in God in the New Testament. In other words... Fear of God is the apex, is the is the test, is the climax of our devotion to God. They really fear God. Now there's a there are three kinds of fear. There's superstitious kind of fear, superstition really, and what some of us call fear of God is really superstition. I went down to Waco not long ago and took my son out to, to, to breakfast, and when I got my check, the the the, the, the the total of it was 666. And I kind of, you know, looked at that with a John eye. For those of you who are not familiar with the book of Revelation, that's the mark of the beast, you know, buying and selling. And when we, when we went to lunch and we ate at El Chico's and I got my check and it was 1313. And, and, I, and I found myself, you know, kind of saying in my heart, God, you, you're trying to tell me something? you know, superst- I don't know whether you're superstitious or not, but some things that we call fear of God really superstition. And then there is that slavish fear that bows, that cows before a bully. And his word here in the Old Testament for fear is neither superstition nor cowing before a bully. Really, the word is best translated reverence or respect or awe. The righteous, he said, are the people who have never lost their sense of awe for the things of God and for God himself. Have you lost that? Gypsy Smith, within his 80s, still had this zeal for God. Somebody asked him, How, what's the secret of that? He said, I've never lost my wonder. The righteous of those who have never lost the wonder. They live in the awareness, in the sense of respect, and, and an awesome awareness of God. And they treat the things of God as seriously as He does. Do, do, you, sometimes, do you sometimes doubt whether this is all true or not? I'm, I'm going to confess this morning. There are times when, you know, in my weaker moments, I, I wonder if this is really all true. You know, it's just too good to be true. And I found myself from time to time, have you, know, you ever done that? You shake your head up and down, that means yes, this means no. Uh, when I just, I, I, have you ever felt like, you know, I wonder if all of this really is true. And every time I get in those moods, something, oh, some, some, somehow in my heart of hearts, there seems to be this little voice that says, He really cares for you. Tell Him thank you. It really is true. I don't know whether I could deny Him or not. Young people, you know, there'll be a test. There are tests coming out there in college and in life where, where your faith really be, will be tested. I, I don't know whether I could deny Him or not. I hear people talking about denying their faith and apostatizing. I don't know whether I could do that or not. It seems to me that a person who denies his faith and apostatizes has never had any to begin with. The righteous man is the the man who is really the man who has a heart for God, is the man who has and maintains this deep respect for him and for his work. There's a second thing about it. How do you distinguish? Well, they are the people that, that love to fellowship with one another. Did, did you see that in verse 16? It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the word means there, the idea is that of encouraging one another. They, they seem to find one another, these, these people of God. And, and, it's, and the idea there is, that is, is, is a linkage or bonding of one life to another. And they minister to one another. And I want you to get the picture. Here are these people, fresh back from Babylonian captivity, feeling that God has totally abandoned them. And they find one another, this little remnant, and they encourage one another. And they build one another up. It's the way the church works. They just seem to be able to sense where the hot coals are. Occasionally I hear some mother or father lament, my child just got with the wrong crowd. I don't know whether that's possible or not. It seems to me that the people of God, those who really have a heart for God, they just find one another. And the idea is there that when they find one another, they encourage, they keep each other going, and that's the beautiful fellowship called the church. I heard Ken Chafin tell about flying one day in an airplane and, I guess if he flew, he was in an airplane. He was flying in this airplane, and this, this guy noticed that he was reading some religious books, and he said, uh, you don't believe that stuff, do you? He said, that's just superstition. And the man identified himself as a scientific humanist, whatever that means. And he said, I found out that I wasn't going to get anywhere arguing with him with regard to theology. So he said... He'd already told me that he had some children, a 14-year-old daughter, and he said, I, I said to him, I said, "Suppose one day you came back from the doctor's office and you'd just been told that that 14-year-old daughter had leukemia. Are these guys that you call scientific humanists, are they going to be able to help you any?" He said, the guy had this blank look on his face, and then he said, "I, I guess, really, that's our weakness. We've never really farmed into communities." That's the strength of the church, young people, is that there is a community called the church, that the believers that just have formed themselves into a fellowship that really cares about one another. And when the times get the toughest and the hours get the darkest, it seems to me that those people are the people that just kind of rise to the top like cream coming to the top. And those are the people that you can lean on and trust. And they encouraged one another And they built one another up. And the implication is that they talked about God to one another. I know when I'm getting a cold heart. I know when I'm beginning to experience a little drift from God is when I get with my closest friends and we don't talk about God together. The righteous, he said, are those who have fellowship. There's a third thing. They know that they're not forgotten. They know that they're not forgotten. This is what He said, He said, the Lord heard them and He wrote down in a book of remembrance, He wrote down what He heard in a book of remembrance that was before Him. Now, in a very poetic and graphic way, the prophet describes something, it's really an illustration, but he said that God keeps a record of all that you do. And that that book is called the book of remembrance and it's constantly before Him so that there's not a moment of His life, His existence, that He's not aware of you and what you do. Now, I grew up where there was a lot of negative preaching going on, and I, I kind of got the idea that everything God knew about me was bad. And that everything He had in His book, and I, 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 I believe that He had this record of everything I did, bad. It's kind of like, okay, boy, I caught you there, and I got that down. And I had this feeling that that God kept a record of everything bad I did, kind of like when old Todd was about five years old. was about that high. Santa Claus came. Is it was at Christmas time? He came to the door one night, unexpected and unannounced. Well, he was Santa Claus helper, really. And he came in. He had this list of things, record, and, and he was. Re- he 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 told me. He said. Uh, he said, Brother Gerald, I see you've been a good boy this year. He told me all the great things i had done. And it had to be Santa Claus because he knew everything, and I had it on his list. And he told my wife, he said, Margaret, and he looked over at Cindy. She was about in eighth grade. He said, Cindy, you've been a real good girl, and I want you to know that Santa's proud of you. And he looked over at Todd, and he's kind <clears> of <throat> cleared his throat. He said, Son, i got bad news. Uh, scarred that boy for life. I mean, said, he said, he said, he, he started, he got on his list. And he said, I see here where you sashed your mother. And he just started reading them off just like he'd been there. I didn't tell him. You, you don't know, Todd just wilted, you know. Poor boy. And, and, and when he finished, Todd, Todd just kind of in a pleading voice, he said, Well, do you have down there... That I carried out the trash and I helped mother clean the room? I mean, he was a plead in this case. I have an idea that what we think about God is that he, he has this record of all the bad we've ever done. I'm, I've got some good news for you. He has a record of all the good you've ever done. It's what the psalmist meant when he said, Record my lament, or my tears not on your scroll, are they not written in your record? What he means by that is this. God, I know that you've gotten down somewhere in eternity, a record of everything I've ever done, and it's never lost. If you want to read through the book of Esther sometime, you'll find the story of Mordecai. He's sitting one day at at the gate, and he hears two men plot the death of the king, and he tells his cousin Esther, who is a Jewish queen, the wife of the king, and she tells her husband, and those two men are executed. And the Bible says that, that the king put down in the book of Chronicles, the book of remembrance, that, that event. But he never thanked him. He never rewarded him. So Mordecai went for years, unrewarded for that, saving the life of the king. And a new king came on the scene. And one day he was looking through the book of remembrances and he saw the record of that. He said, that man has never been rewarded. He's never been thanked. And so they brought him out and they rewarded him. There's a lot of things you do, my friend, that are never seen by men, that are not in the spotlight. They never gain the the, the, the center of attention. There's a lot of folks this morning up in that TV room and down there in the nursery. And there, are us, there are all kinds of things that go on week after week that never receives notice. I tell you, it's never lost on God. And so, the, so Paul shouted and exulted when he thought of the resurrection and said, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that whatever you do in the Lord is not in vain. They've never forgotten. I have time just to mention two more. The people of God, those are the, who are the righteous are made his special possession. Now watch this, verse 17 says, And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. The the Hebrew is, on the day that I act. The problem with these people is this, they didn't think God was doing anything. He said, on that day that I act, I will make these folks my own possession. Look at this. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. What he's saying is this. The thing that distinguishes the righteous from the unrighteous is that the righteous are his own special possession. And because you're his special possession, he will both perfect and protect you. And that means that there will come experiences in your life, just like these people are going through... When, when you'll experience the things that you resent and you reject, and they're just a part of God perfecting His possession, and He protects you. And He says, I'll spare you like a, a man spares his own son against that day. He's talking about the day of judgment. So He's going to protect you. Perfect you and protect you. A few weeks ago I picked up the newspaper and I read about a guy who broke into the... To, uh, Museum down in University of Texas and stole some scribbling, some doodling. Now I do that all the time. My secretaries, they they just get together every you know every time I am write something up for them to do and they try to discern what it what, what it is, <laughs> you know. And it's kind of kind of a game we play is that I, you know I give them a special reward if they get it all you know right without missing a word. They can't read that, just scribbling, you know. Well, this guy broke into this. This, this museum in, in, in Austin, and he stole the, the scribbling, doodling. Now, the reason why that doodling, that he, he stole that day, is more important than what I do every day, is because the scribbling he stole was done by Albert Einstein. He got in there to get that because he knew it was worth three quarters of a million dollars. Let me tell you something. Watch this carefully. Because you measure the value of the possession by the possessor, you are special people because you belong to Him. And out of His hand has come your life. Out of of His hand has come the molding of which you are special people. And He's going to preserve you and protect you against judgment. One last distinguishing characteristic. He said in verse, let me just read it, verse 1 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. You're sitting around wondering why the wicked prosper and you're not getting along so well. He said, The day is going to come when it's going to be hot, it's going to get hot. And they'll be like chaff, burned, set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. They'll be totally destroyed. Ultimate destruction is the judgment of God. But for you who fear my name, he said, the Son of Righteousness, it's S-U-N, not S-O-N, It's the only time it's found in Scripture. It's a beautiful term. The sun of righteousness will rise on you with healing in its wings. And that term, healing in its wings, refers to the rays of the sun. On you, he's saying, what's this? There will rise the sun of righteousness, and you'll get some rays, and there'll be healing in those rays. Notice what happens. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Now I said in the early service that I'm sure that, that if you, those of you who do not know me would never guess that I was raised on the farm with all the sophistication and the culture that I possess, but I was. And, and I, I know exactly what he's talking about here. Because I put calves in the stalls to wean them from their mothers. And you put them in the stalls and you wean them from their mothers there. And then the day comes when it's time to let them out. And you open the gate and those calves going from the stall. The first thing they do is they run to the open field. Every farmer here has seen it. They run to the open field, their tails straight up in the air. And they're kicking their heels up. It's the picture of release and freedom. And the word in the Hebrew means really to dance or to prance. It means to paw the ground like a young colt. And it's a reference to future and present release and freedom. It means that this is what the children of God possess. They possess freedom and release. And when the final day comes, dying for the people of God is like being let out of a cell. It's like being released from bondage. It's like being cut loose from the anchor. It's like flying away. It's release and freedom. Do you know that, freedom? The first church I ever pastored, I was a college student. I had this couple who, who sang. They didn't sing, they sang. And, and I'm telling you, it was, it was a, uh, a real test to listen to them sing. But they sang almost... You know, every other Sunday, the same song. And the song was, It Pays to Serve Jesus. It Pays Every Day. It Pays Every Step of the Way. Now, I'm not sure that's really right. I'm not sure that it really pays to serve Jesus every day. I'm not really convinced that things go better with God. But I am convinced that there is a distinguishing characteristic of the people of God, and that is this. And it involves freedom and release. Would you pray with me? Father, for these moments of decision, commitment, and invitation, I pray your will to be done through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There are three invitations that are offered every Sunday here. An invitation first for you to receive Christ as your Savior. I can tell you how to be free from slavery, to be, to be set free from bondage, to be let out. I can't tell you that if you receive Christ you will be prosperous and successful. I can't tell you that. But I can tell you that you'll find a difference that you will experience a newness that's like being born again. I invite you this morning to place your faith in Jesus Christ, to come receiving Him as your Savior. There may be some of you this morning who need to be a part of this family, caring family. One of the sweetest things I've heard in a long time, I heard a lady tell me this week, a brand new Christian, She said, the moment I walked in the doors of this church, I sensed God here. And she said, I just love to walk up and down the halls of this church because I feel God here. I would hope that would be something everyone could say. Would you like to come this morning and place your life in this church? You do that by transfer of membership or whatever. There may be some who need to come this morning to just say, I'm not pleased and satisfied with my life. It is not unique. It's not different. I want to rededicate myself. I want to make a new stand for God today, a new commitment. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.